0: This is Suno India production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now.
1: This mini series has been made possible by a grant from the Thakur Family Foundation. Thakur Family Foundation had no editorial control on these episodes. Hi, I am Padma Priya the Editor-in-Chief of Suno India and your host for this series, Talking Right. In the previous episode, we highlighted a best-case practice from Maharashtra's Dharni Village where communication was at the core of how pandemic was handled with the support of the community. In this episode of Talking Right, our mini-series reported over the course of the pandemic, I bring to you a conversation with Dr. Yogesh Kalkunde, a renowned public health researcher. Dr. Karl Kunde works for SEARCH, Society for Education, Action and Research in Community Health. I started by asking him how he feels we fared as a country from the communication aspect.
0: We have not fared well. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, IEC, or I, I personally like the word behavioral change communication better because you can provide information, education and communicate, but you will not be able to change behavior. So I guess one has to sort of uh, have a higher goal of behavioral change communication. So uh, I, I believe, you know, we are not taught about behavioral change communication well enough. Uh, and the ethos, I mean, pandemics are handled uh, in by public health systems, uh, with medical systems being the sub part of it. And uh, traditionally, the, the public health systems in India have been weak. And the whole thing, you know, the, the way we fought this pandemic was at the medical level. So, personally i believe that you know icus is not a place to fight a battle a uh, pandemic and uh, essentially that means that the uh, you allow the virus to breach the sanctum sanctorum and reach the icus so i personally believe that uh, you know that's that's a failure and that's a failure of uh, primary care and before primary care essentially behavioral change communication so in terms of public health the behavioral change communication plays a key role uh, just to you know, put things in perspective. If you look at COVID, 85% of the uh, you know COVID patients had mild or asymptomatic COVID. So the the uh, the 85% of the job had to be done by behavioral change communication because you wanted to reassure them, make sure they don't come and uh, you know sort of uh, storm the hospitals. And uh, so on a larger scale, I would say. Uh, that earlier, like in the early part of the pandemic, 85% of the job was that of behavioral change communication. And I think there we failed miserably because I think uh, we did not have a strategy. And again, this this reflects on the the ethos of the country that we give, uh, we looked at it as a medical problem, not as a public health problem.
2: Some very valid, I mean, very interesting points that you've brought up. I think one of the things that you which for me really struck the chord is the part where you said, you know, we have looked at it as a medical problem and not as a public health problem. Now for listeners who really would not understand the difference between those two, could you sort of just break it down for them?
0: Right. So essentially, you know, public health care, uh, you know, uh, includes a largely prevention, communication and overall management of health resources. So, in a larger public health system, we have a sub part called medical system Medical system is essentially when the patient is sick and needs to get into the hospital uh that's where sort of largely medical uh, you know care starts but a large part of that, especially in pandemic was sort of uh, you know should uh should have been outside the uh, the hospitals like testing should have been more decentralized and they should have been in the community so the care at the community uh, uh, preventive care uh vaccination. Uh, sort of planning to avoid a flooding of hospitals, uh, larger communication comes into public health and management of all the resources that you have, including, you know, uh, uh, the hospitals become one resource uh, uh, to the public health system, but that did not happen. And what happened is just, uh, it was sort of a, you know, sort of uh party relationship between individuals who got infected and the hospitals. So we we failed to address this at a systems level, so health systems level and as i said the uh, the the health the part of the health system which is outside the hospital largely comprises of public health um
2: have there been any if from your experience have there been any um, or can you recollect any good examples of where behavioral change communications actually helped say curb an epidemic or even in terms of say um you know countering certain you know, hesitancy that might come up among a community. Do you have any example? Right,
0: right. So the, the good example of that is HIV. So uh, and it's a, it's a slow uh, epidemic uh, as against COVID, which was uh, one could call it as a fast uh, you know epidemic or a pandemic. So in HIV, a large part was handled through behavioral change communication. Uh, so we do have successful examples, and uh, you know, a lot of. Uh, uh, other instances, I mean, TV, there is partial success uh, of uh, communication, uh, uh, where we actually are improving on the communication. And I also see that gradually uh, the way we are communicating about tuberculosis, uh, the way you see, I mean, the, the day, on the day to day basis, you see ads on the TV, those are improving. So th- there are many examples where uh, sort of, you know, through behavioral change communication, things start to change. One other example would be smoking in uh, public places or, uh, you know, uh, even, uh, smoking in buses. So that has significantly gone down. There's regulation, but also there's behavioral change, communication, and you start making that thing uncool. So smoking in public places uh, now looks uncool, which was hard to imagine 20-25 years ago. Um,
2: One of the things that a lot of countries, other countries had already in place was a pandemic management plan. Um, India too was working towards and had actually put a pandemic plan in place. Where do you think we went wrong in terms of the behavioral change side of things. And um, because you mentioned, may, it's maybe like a offshoot of that question, um, because you had mentioned about TV ads, what do you see or how do you see the role of media, mass media, in actually communicating about a pandemic? And how do you think we did?
0: Yeah. I think it's a, it's a crux. Mass media is the crux uh, in terms of, you know, uh, providing communication. And um, in some aspects, mass media did a good job, especially like uh, speaking against unproved medications and uh, use of unproved medications highlighting i personally feel that you know mass media actually serves as a nervous system for a country 's response so all you get you need to get a lot of information uh, on a very smart in a short time and the mass media helps in that uh, so mass media's response was uh, uh to some extent good on highlighting certain things, but also uh, in, in some parts it uh, sort of Amplified panic. So I personally believe that you know, just showing the uh, the difficulties faced by patients and you know, long lines of uh, people sort of uh, waiting for getting severe it just amplified that this is such a panicky situation. So uh, I wonder if this could have been handled slightly differently. Social media actually played a larger part uh, than mass media uh, because. Uh, you know, it was easily reachable for a majority of people. Just now being having it on your phone just increases the access. And a uh, lot of misinformation actually got floated on social media. So I guess at a country level, we should have had a strategy to, uh, you know, handle things on social media well. I mean, government was a little late in responding over social media. And the way you sh- the government responded was largely through Twitter. Uh, and not many people get onto Twitter. So, including like the, the the tools that you are using on social media and awareness about it, and having um, having a strategy to uh, you know sort of spread your message on social media was uh, you know grossly lacking. So, WhatsApp was the the tool that uh, actually played a major role in spreading both information and disinformation, largely misinformation.
2: You know, because you one of the things that you pointed out was there was a lot of panic that was also spread by the media at what point do you think the government should have intervened about some of these these you know what were considered almost like miracle cures right let's like say the remedis were or ivermectin yeah, yeah. at what point yeah. should the government have intervened because i think it was pretty much in the second half of the second wave i think that yeah, they actually yeah, came yeah. out with you know proper yeah, guidelines yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, so I think our, our response actually started on a hyper side. So with the, you know, uh, mass lockdown, we started on a hyper side and then suddenly we relaxed, uh, in a crazily relaxed. So uh, I think the initial stance was good in a way, but other than, you know, the mass sort of uh, tragedy of the migrants, uh, it, the, the, the level at which decisions were taken and the stringency of the decision, uh, that was not followed up by a more scientifically stringent approach. So, uh, if one would have had like, you know, uh, the, the pandemics play out and the, and the ploy of the pandemics is very standard. So nothing new happened in this pandemic. We know what happens in pandemic. But again, as I said, we, you know, it almost sort of unfolds and, you know, you have, uh, you have people spreading rumors, uh, you have, you know, uh, there is a, uh, scarcity that, you know, sort of gets projected. So these are, these are again, standard ploys and, uh, one thing that happened was, uh, for seeking hope, uh, people allowed the policymakers sort of allowed uh, doctors to use unproven medications. So uh, that was sort of a battle. The, I think the the, uh, the the politics part of it was, you know, keeping the hope alive and giving people some options. So one thing was clear that there is no specific medications for uh, uh, treating this, uh, you know, condition. And that sort of uh, might have given negative message. So I think policymakers were soft on sort of controlling uh, the availability of drugs. A lot of them were unproven. So this that's where I think we need to have uh, a better sort of response in terms of, we should have had a better response in terms of, you know, science guiding, the evidence guiding uh, the drugs that are used in the pandemic or the intervention, not even the drugs, but intervention.
2: One of the things that consistently came up, I think, also during the first wave and during the second wave, was was about the data. There was a lot of data suppression going on, whether it was about the number of cases or the number of deaths. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we still don't know the actual the actual figure in that yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. How does data suppression affect you know how this how people behave during pandemics? Do you think that has a role in in that sense?
0: So I guess. Uh... I guess the policymakers thought that suppressing the data would, uh, you know, stop uh, creation of panic. And that's what they thought, and I guess this is, you know, you could look at it as a scientifically trained community versus scientifically untrained community. What your country is, and so the data response was uh, like of the of the policymakers was like, this is a scientifically illiterate community. So let's suppress the data. Let's focus on emotions more than science and rationality. So uh I guess the response was headed that way that let's suppress the data so that stop uh, stop spreading, uh, stop spreading uh, panic." And this is again, this was used uh, during the you know influenza pandemic in 1980. was uh, even in England, they systematically suppressed uh, publication of uh, numbers of patients because they just the policymakers just wanted the country to move on and not getting trapped into under the panic. So it, it, one could argue that, you know, from that standpoint, it could have been, it could have been a reasonable strategy. Uh, but without data, I think personally being from a scientific background, I personally feel that you know, if you're driving pandemic response without data, it's like blind driving. You don't know what the road is like and then you are driving. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a cash 22 situation but personally i would personally feel, you know feel that you know it should have been data driven and uh, people should have been more open about uh, what is happening and uh, sort of in- instead of like uh, spending energy on suppressing the data they could have used the same energy to actually provide care and uh, on preventive efforts
2: um as somebody who's worked in rural india what uh, were some of the challenges that you saw in terms of communication um whether it's tools or whether it's just the messaging or the narrative around the pandemic in rural india
0: so what happened in terms of messaging was it almost played out like uh, this pandemic was a was an urban pandemic, a lot of discussion. So what happened is the rich and powerful and uh, wealthy people got affected. So the whole discourse was as if this pandemic only affected cities uh, and uh, rich people. Uh, and so the whole focus was on, you know, even the, the communication was highly focused on, uh, towards uh, urban population, not particularly for rural population in terms of, I mean, that's a, that's a chronic thing in India that we almost disown, uh, the rural population, uh, because everything is driven through city, uh, cities. And that's kind of sad because two third of India's population lives in rural areas. So if you're just talking about urban India, you're, you know, you're actually not talking about India. You're just talking about one third of India. So A, when, I mean, did we have proper strategies for behavioural change communication in rural area? Largely no. So uh, again, it, it's not, <laughs> it's not on the and the minds of policymakers, and that's sad. I think one behavioural change communication that should happen through this pandemic is sensitising policymakers to rural challenges. So, and, uh, you know, considering it as a part of India, if you, uh, one has to put it provocatively. So, uh, I guess we need separate rural strategies. And, uh, you know, usually in IEC or BCC in India, the tendency is to just convert English messages into local language and put it uh, in a very drab, uh, you know local languages as poster and put it up and that is not I mean behavioral change communication is a whole science in itself and you look at you know ad agencies they have a they understand behavioral human behavior then they prepare you have professionals who prepare these ads so similarly we need uh, for behavioral change communication in rural area we need people who specialize who understand uh, rural populations who understand local anecdotes who understand local stories and uh, they know how to put this forth in the right way so that was, I, I believe that was largely missing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sad thing that, you know, uh, we need uh, material in local languages. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it was surprising to see, you know, government of India putting, uh, behavioral change communication messages in English on Twitter. So, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it needs to be converted. And again, as I said, it should not be just translation of English messages into, uh, local, uh, language.
2: And quite a bit seems to have also been driven by a lot of the scientific community. Like you know, um, I know there was a group of scientists who came together to translate things into you know different languages. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also like a lot of NGOs were doing quite yeah, a bit. yeah, on yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, what what needed what was needed was creating local content. Yeah. So essentially, if you had a had a community leader and the community leader is vouching for vaccination, that's what we needed uh, in their local language. Because ultimately, you know, particularly for vaccine. Or uh, for medical care, what people were looking for was trust. And what struck me was, in rural area, people were extremely reluctant to go to uh, government hospitals. And it's a it's a irony that we completed seventy five years since independence, and after seventy five years, uh, people in India still feel sort of distrustful of the government's health services. So that to me was a was irony and tragedy both. So a you have to generate, especially in in such scenario like pandemics, you have to generate trust because people go by trust. And the trust is generated either through community leaders or involvement of local people. Because they are going to trust, at the end of the day, they trust people that they know.
1: This is the aspect that Dr. Mitali also highlighted in the previous episode and how people responded to messages in Hindi versus Korku, the language spoken by the indigenous population of Dharani village.
2: Um, And I think this is like a good way to sort of jump into, you know, what I wanted to ask you next was about the role of actually community in tackling the pandemic and this whole vaccine hesitancy that has that had come up and it was seen even we saw it even in the urban pockets there were a lot of like people yeah. who were scared to get vaccines yeah. Yeah. um so you know can you tell us a bit about how we could have engaged with also say faith leaders or you know with uh, the with, uh, the sarpanch of say a village um right.
0: right at that
2: level what could we have done more
0: so uh, i think you know one thing we forget i mean as we said that uh, we want we want, A, we should have addressed this as a public health challenge. And the other, you know, challenge of public health is often the public in public health gets missing. It's just the health professional who start delivering things. So, uh, we need to, at a value system, we need to acknowledge that, you know, you ultimately you are managing health of the community. So essentially without involvement of communities, it's then the community becomes a passive recipient. And if there are trust deficit, then there is essentially uh, the health givers and health or health care providers and patients become enemies of each other. And that we saw in rural areas. So in a lot of villages where the, the health teams came for testing, people were so mad that they went after the health teams with axes and sticks and they said, do not enter our village. And why this happened is because there was no communication and the whole thing was driven by fear. So, A, it's this extremely important that uh, we engage community leaders and uh, one of the ways is to work closely in the administration. One way is to hide things and the other thing is to sort of go to them and explain them in their language. The other queries that they had was about, you know, uh, even if I get vaccine, I still get infected. So, how do you sort of, uh, you know, tackle this? And. Uh, one other friend who was working in the rural Chhattisgarh addressed them by giving local analogy. He said that you use insecticide in farms, and does it ensure that you would not your uh, you know farm or the, the the plants will not get any pests? And they said no. I mean, there is always a risk. So he said that similarly, the vaccine works similarly. So this was a beautiful local analogy that he chose uh, to convey this meaning. So uh, a engaging gram panchayat, uh, explaining like uh, answering hard questions working with them and uh, solving small challenges. I mean, one s- a simple challenge was people would go to the farm and come back. And if the vaccine is there, they said that I wouldn't get vaccinated because I haven't had a food. So just keeping a-, a packet of biscuits there helped to solve that problem. So local problem solving at a very small level. Uh, so people had fearful that they had after vaccine, they had fever. So just providing paracetamol tablets along with uh, vaccination. But these simple, small things that actually provide, you know, work. And so somebody should have collected this, uh, all this information from rural area and created a package of things to do. And that would have worked. So uh, so it was it was sort of, uh, you know, it was a late realization.
2: Did you come across a lot of misinformation as part of your work and how did you tackle this during the pandemic?
0: So misinformation was there in all sorts of form. And just to tell you how, you know, how fast the misinformation spread uh uh, Luke Montagnier was a French scientist who made a very controversial comment about the vaccine, and he said that those who have taken vaccine are going to die. And uh, the same day or next day, uh, a patient asked me in the rural Ghatshiroli that uh, I heard that the vaccine—all people who have taken vaccine are going to die. So, uh, <laughs> so it just shows you how fast the information or misinformation has spread uh, uh, in the rural area. So, uh, one thing is. Uh, you know, A, you have to counter misinformation with more positive information. So I think if government would have had a WhatsApp sale, sort of, uh, which engaged local leaders uh, on a massive scale. So the scale should have been, you know, massive. And uh, there was uh, hardly any investment from government, uh, especially on the WhatsApp platform. So uh, that should have been done better. And then you have to address uh, one win misinformation at a time. So, and people had, you know, very small sort of simple excuses that they say if, you know if i get uh, they they say that uh, you know if someone gets vaccine they get you know they they die so you have to counter that you have to tell them that this is probably an association and not causation um then there was uh, the uh, misconception of sterility to, uh after taking vaccines so you have to address that you know this is not a concern provide them and use the trust that they have in you to sort of convey them uh, what this is about And what is the right information? We should be investing in behavioral change communication because a lot of, uh, you know, you can avoid a lot of health problems by investing in preventive health. And preventive health is largely sort of managed through proper behavioral change communication. So one thing that we should learn out of this pandemic is to set up a, you know, not a department of or a a team of behavioral change communication uh, with highly trained professionals in within the health system. Or maybe it could be a separate sort of department and uh, we should be ready to sort of provide information. Quickly and in a in a way that would be sort of uh, acceptable to rural and tribal people um, or people in general, and not just doling out information that just doesn't give any cues to people as to what they should do next. Okay. And there should be some way of you know handling the misinformation. And I personally believe that the way you handle misinformation is by creating trust and use people uh, who have in whom people the other community has trust and engage community leaders uh, fairly early in the communication.
2: I mean, now we're talking here about, you know, how the the communication or the behavioral change communication around COVID itself has been lacking. And now there is a the bigger problem where worldwide that a lot of now countries are waking up to, which is long COVID. Um, and that's a conversation that's almost not happening in India at all. So, you know, but these are actually, this could actually be like longish sort of NCDs and chronic illnesses that, you know, that will come like a wave now for us. Yeah. So, what should the governments be doing now? You know, should they be...
0: So, one thing is, A, you know, there is discussion about long COVID. So, A, we need to look at what's the prevalence of long COVID. So, simple things are you know, conducting prevalence studies and see how many patients in urban area or rural area have symptoms of long COVID. And so, first thing, know this, you know, know the extent of long COVID. We see what are the most disabling conditions uh, in the long COVID that people are facing. And uh, C would be provide solutions. What uh, you know, what kind of solutions one can provide to treat long COVID. Long treating long COVID is not a easy. Not going to be easy thing. So a lot of support will not be medical. It would be probably more social rehabilitative uh, type of support. So that uh, should be provided. Uh, that I mean, we have sort of uh, in urban area there would be luxury of having such support in the rural area even that would be challenging. If you yeah. do that, I mean th- th- the peers might say that oh you're just you're just being lazy. So go back to work.
1: This mini-series has been made possible by a grant from the Thakur Family Foundation. Thakur Family Foundation had no editorial control on these episodes.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now.